to live the good life, the truly happy life. We continue to study the book of Matthew together. We're going to begin to examine the way that Jesus talks about the truly, the good life, the full life, the blessed life, the, the happy life. Happy not in the sense of the thin emotion that's here one moment and gone the next, but happy in the sense of robust, fullness, the good life. And the question that we have to ask as we start this morning is, how have we come to define the good life? Who is it that defines it for you? What messages have you imbibed and have become part of the system to, to begin to structure the way that you consider what makes for a good life? And there's no shortage of voices that want to define it for us. There's a, a few that I'll just introduce you to. Some, some maybe you've heard before, maybe some you haven't. Uh, I spent some time in the 90s listening to a band called Weezer. They wanted to define for us the good life. It's what they say, I don't want to be an old man anymore. It's been a year or two since I was out on the floor shaking my booty. It's time I got back to the good life. It's time I got back. I don't even know how I got off track. I want to go back, yeah. And then he says this, which rings true for a guy that spent some time growing up in Georgia. He says, I just want sugar in my tea. Do you hear me? I want sugar in my tea. I don't want to be an old man anymore. I want to get back to the good life. And for him, you see what he's saying? It's, in part, it's about being young, still getting to be able to get out on the dance floor, having a little sugar in my tea. If I can just a little sweetness in life, a little bit of youthful vigor, that's the good life. There's a song by the same title by Kanye and T-Pain. If you're familiar with it, you know that I'm not going to read any of the lyrics. <laughs> I would not still be the pastor of this church at the end of that. But I will say that it's, it's about girls and money and Ferraris and champagne on private planes. That the good life is defined by accumulation and pleasure and experience. And so there, there's this interesting, there's this stream that is running right through the center of our culture, whether you like rock or rap or anything in between, that's saying the good life is about just enough sweetness, just enough accumulation, as long as I end up on top, all's well. But if you scroll back to first century Jewish men and women that are sitting at the feet of Jesus, what would they have heard? What would be the stream that was running through their culture and their minds? Interestingly, there was actually a man named Jesus ben Sirach who lived 100 years before Jesus of Nazareth, and he also taught about the good life. He was one of the most famous Jewish teachers at the time, and he had a series of beatitudes, of blessings that were part of his most famous teaching. Here's what he said. He said, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. The one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue. And the one who never serves an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. And the interesting thing about Jesus ben Sirach, if I just read that to you, you might immediately go, yeah, I think that's probably in the Bible somewhere. That sounds like maybe the Proverbs or something. But interestingly, ben Sirach 
is speaking in some ways in the same line with the same stream that still runs through our culture today. It sounds, it's got kind of some interesting wisdom language to it, but ultimately what he's saying is, blessed is the man that when he speaks, others listen. Blessed is the one who sees the downfall of his foes and ends up with just enough stuff and respect and pleasure and a happy life. That's the blessed life. And if you scroll back even further, you could go to someone like Aristotle who spent a lot of time trying to establish what the good life was. And he was swimming in the same stream, though with different emphases and different levels of moderation. He says it's a combination of health and prosperity and good luck and being respected by others. And what you realize is that whether you're singing T-Pain or sitting at the feet of Aristotle, the, the stream that has coursed throughout humanity for most of history has proclaimed that the good life means ending up on top. Just a little sugar in my tea, a little vitality, a little prosperity, somebody telling me I'm great, that would be the good life. And this week, and over the coming eight weeks, as we slowly walk with Jesus of Nazareth, speaking about the good life, what we are going to find is that he jumps into that stream and he starts swimming against the flow. He's going to say things that would certainly challenge and offend Kanye, but also would challenge and offend Jesus, Ben Sirach, and Aristotle, that would actually press into and challenge, what do we mean really by the good life. And he is going to, to say things that will challenge and at times confuse, that we will have to sit and slow down and say, okay, Jesus, what exactly do you mean by this? And we've been studying the, the gospel of Matthew together. We come to Matthew chapter five and it's just helpful to, to remember that if we're reading slowly through the book of Matthew, that you arrive at chapter five sitting at the edge of your seat saying, yes, Jesus, teach me. Because what we have seen is a man, the heavens were opened and the spirit of God descended on him. The voice of the father said, this is my son. He has battled with Satan out in the desert and secured victory in a scuffle with the devil himself. He has the power to heal in his hands. He, he is unlike anyone else, but he has not taught anything yet. All we have heard him say is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come, but we don't know the content of his teaching yet. And now in Matthew 5, he sits down and he opens his mouth. The attentive reader of the book of Matthew positions himself on the end of the seat and goes, ah, oh, what is it that he has to say? How is this one going to define the good life? And so we're gonna go on this journey together and I'm going to invite you to with me over the coming eight weeks. I'm going to invite you, I'm going to challenge you to, to actually memorize the Beatitudes as a church. So we're going to come back to them. It's, it's just a few verses as Jesus is defining the good life. So we're going, to, we're going to issue a challenge. Would you memorize these verses with us? A verse at a time over the next eight weeks. But more than just memorize, we want to meditate on, we want to prioritize the voice of Jesus and say, would you reveal to us what the full, happy, pure life is. And I believe it will turn some things upside down for us, but in so doing will reveal to us the sort of life that truly is indestructible, beautiful, pure, that we can live with Jesus in a way that is truly the good life. This morning, 
In Matthew 5, 1 through 3, he's going to give us the key that's going to unlock the door and invite us into the full of what we're going to do. And this morning, what we're going to learn is this. The truly happy life is only available to bankrupt disciples. Matthew 5, 1 through 3 is going to teach us that the truly happy life, the full life, the good life is only available to bankrupt disciples. Let's see if we can make sense of that together. First, what do we mean by disciples? Look back at verses one and two with me. It says that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain. It's one of his favorite spots. Jesus loved the beautiful vistas. He would constantly go to the mountain or by the lake to teach and to interact with his followers. And so the crowds are gathering. We know from chapter four that they're gathering because they've been receiving healing. Jesus has been traveling and touching and many are getting healed and so the crowd is growing and when he sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and then he sat down and his disciples came to him. So do you see the two phrases that emerge in verse one as he prepares to teach? It's that there's great crowds but when he sits down, it's the disciples that draw near to him. There's this interesting dynamic that's taking shape and it runs through the whole of the book of Matthew. So if we're going to make sense of this gospel together, we have to feel this, this interaction between these two words. There are crowds. Wherever Jesus is, there's crowds. That term's going to show up 43 times in the book of Matthew. And the crowds are people that marvel at Jesus. They're fed by Jesus. They're healed by Jesus. They like Jesus. They think he's incredibly entertaining. They're waiting to see what he's going to pull off next. They, want to, yeah, they, like anyone else, are in for seeing the lame guy get up and walk and the blind guy see, and they're in for eating miraculous bread that gets multiplied in his hands. They're in on all of that. The crowds marvel at Jesus. They are a constant through the book of Matthew. But the interesting thing is that the first 38 times we're going to read the term crowd, we're going to think, yeah, okay. They marvel at Jesus, they're taught by Jesus, they're fed by Jesus, they're healed by Jesus, good for the crowds. And then the last five times that Matthew uses the term crowd, we all of a sudden realize that crowds are really fickle. The crowds are not submitted and crowds are not committed. They're just there for the show. Because the last five times, what we see is the crowd, they show up with Judas on the night that Jesus is betrayed. That was a crowd. It was a crowd that gathered outside when they're calling for blood when he's being tried by Pilate. It's the crowd that says crucify him. It's the crowd that turns on him because they were only always there for themselves. The crowd gathers and goes, as long as Jesus is entertaining and he gives me the good life as defined by Aristotle and Jesus ben Sirach and, and T-Pain, I'm in. You see, the crowd's they love to marvel at Jesus. But then in the midst of it, there's this other term. It's the first time in the New Testament that we read it. So it's really important that we define it properly. It's really, really important that we slow down and say, what do we mean by this? Because here's all the crowds, but out of the crowds, there's some that are called disciples and they gather near Jesus. This is the first time, if you're just reading your New Testament, that you were introduced to the term disciple. Now, I'm not going to ask you to shout out the answers, but I want you to think with me. And John David, you're not allowed to answer because we already did this on Thursday. How many times are we, are, are, is the word Christian used in the New Testament? How many times is the word Christian used in the New Testament? The answer is three. 
There's three times that the New Testament talks about being a Christian. How many times does the New Testament talk about being a believer? A believer. Fifteen times. Fifteen times the New Testament is, is pointed at and talking about believing some content, arranging ourselves around our beliefs that we share together in Jesus. Now, how many times does the New Testament use the term disciple? 235. 235. The focus of the New Testament is not getting a group of people together that will call themselves Christians or to just believe a few certain doctrines. The, the aim of the New Testament is raising up disciples of Jesus. Disciple literally means learner, but it doesn't just mean like mental learner, it means whole life learner. Like I am an apprentice to a master craftsman. And as he works, I work, and my life begins to mirror his life until all of a sudden I live my life as if he were living it. This is disciple. So when Jesus sits down and he begins to teach, and he's going to teach about the good life, he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to those who will listen, he is doing so not to the crowds, though they are welcome to listen in. They're all there. But who is he speaking to? He's speaking to disciples. He's saying, I'm looking for people that aren't here to marvel at me. I'm looking for people that are here to move with me. Jesus is speaking to disciples, different than the crowd. You see, the crowds move with Jesus. They experience Jesus. They actually don't just get fed by Jesus, they partner with him to feed the crowds. They don't just get healed by Jesus, they get empowered to be the hands and the feet of Jesus around them. The disciples have a very different experience of Jesus in the New Testament than the crowds do. And so here Jesus sits down to address these disciples. Disciples that will make plenty of missteps. They're not perfect. They're ho- they are very flawed, but they're with Jesus to the end. And the final thing Jesus is going to say to them is go and make more disciples because this, this is my focus. This is my emphasis. This is what I've come to do. So Jesus' ministry, we are going to see as we begin to interact with this good life, It's about handcrafted disciples, not mass-produced crowds. About slow, relational, life-on-life, giving himself away to these people. And it's to the disciples that he's going to teach about the good life because the good life is only available to disciples, to those that are ready to move with Jesus. I remember in college meeting guys for the first time where it was like, oh, these guys are not just believers, They don't just believe truths about the Bible. They don't just call themselves Christians, but they had begun to think about every area of their life. The dollars that they spend, the way that they talk to people, I would watch them. I'd watch them in the cafeteria at TCU. Go Horn Frogs. Bill. Um, At TCU, I'd watch them. I'd watch them as they sat down to eat and they ate differently. The person that they chose to to sit next to, the way that they listened to them, the way that they spent their Friday and Saturday night was different. And I started to go, oh, oh, Jesus wants everything. He wants all of it. 
You see, my question as we get going, because we're about to talk about what it looks like for Jesus to begin to hand the keys of the kingdom over, but, but he sits down and very clearly delineates, here's all the crowds, but it's to the disciples I'm talking to. And so I want to ask this question. I want to ask this question. Have you leaned in with the whole of your life with Jesus? Because he's going to extend an invitation to the good life the full life, but it is for those that are disciples, not just mass-produced crowds that, that are hoping for a good show, that sprinkles some tools that are going to help them end up on top over their life. We're about to celebrate baptism together, which I'm really excited about. Ashley and I get to baptize our middle son, Caleb, in just about 30 minutes right out front. We can't wait. The second question that he's going to answer before he enters the waters of baptism is, do you believe that Jesus has been resurrected and that he is the Lord of life and you want to follow him the rest of your days? You see, entering the waters of baptism is a declaration that he is the king and he has sway over every square inch of my life. The good life is available to bankrupt disciples. But secondly, the good life is available to bankrupt disciples disciples did you see it in verse three when jesus finally opens his mouth and he begins to teach to these individuals what does he say as he actually begins his beatitudes as he's going to flip jesus ben sirach's beatitudes upside down what does he say he says this blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Jesus has come announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the presence of God is available and everyone has gathered and they're wondering, what does this mean? And the first thing that he says as he launches into his most famous sermon is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This sermon that Jesus is launching into is his most famous These Beatitudes are some of the most famous religious literature in the history of mankind. And as best we can tell, this sermon is Jesus' home base and the fullness of his ministry. Because we get it here in Matthew 5 through 7. We also get it in Luke chapter 6. But in Luke, it's in a different location, in a different setting, in a different approach. Because as best we can tell, Jesus, like an itinerant preacher, moves from town to town. And this is home base. This is what he, he teaches with consistency, with different points of emphasis and structure. And as he stands and he speaks in a new crowd with a new people, he starts by speaking blessing over them. But as they prepare to receive this blessing of the good and the happy life, he says, are the, are the poor in spirit? There are two common words for poor in the Greek language. One means the working poor, the person that every, every paycheck is quickly used up. And they're living paycheck to paycheck, wondering, am I going to have enough for the next meal? Am I going to have enough to make mortgage? It was the working poor. The other word is abject poverty. The word actually comes from the root word for kneel or cower. It means one that's been laid low, absolutely bankrupt, cannot, does not have a penny to their name, poor. That's the word Jesus chooses. He doesn't say working poor in spirit. He doesn't say just making ends meet in spirit. He says laid low in abject poverty in spirit. What is it that Jesus is getting at as he begins to talk about the good life? Well, I think in many ways he is, he is introducing us to the whole of his sermon, the whole of the kingdom principles by saying only enter 
if you're bankrupt. Only enter if you realize you can't do this. The sermon itself is going to drive us back to this first verse over and over and over. Jesus is going to say things like, uh, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say if you're even angry in your heart, you're already a murderer. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I'm saying if you have lust in your heart, you're already an adulterer. The sermon itself, if you don't come in feeling bankrupt, will bankrupt you. The reason that he starts here is he's saying, don't enter these waters if you're coming to do it by yourself. Don't come in here to try to go on this journey of being a disciple if you're going to do so by your own strength. This is why my dear friends that are walking through AA start with the the first and the second steps in the 12-step process to say that my life has become unmanageable and I don't have the tools to deal with this. And so I need a power greater than myself to restore sanity to this craziness. The steps one and two of the 12-step process are the declaration of spiritual bankruptcy. And we have something to learn from our friends in AA. Our journey as a disciple is supposed to start in the very same place. The reason, the reason, grace and God's economy always precedes law grace in God's economy always precedes law Jesus is being set up as a new Moses here Jesus has been delivered from Egypt in Matthew 2 he's come through the waters of baptism he's been delivered from the waters he's gone up on the mountain and now his followers are coming to him to teach Matthew is very clearly setting Jesus up as the next Moses and as he begins to teach his law He teaches it in the same way that Moses did because when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and came back with the law, he came back with 10 commandments. But do you know how the 10 commandments start? Do you know how the 10 commandments start? I am the God who set you free from slavery. And then God begins to issue commandments. Why? He says, I've already won you. You couldn't set yourself free. You were in chains in Egypt. The Ten Commandments start with grace because in God's economy, grace always precedes law. God comes and says, you can't do it, but I will meet you in the midst of it. By my power, I will deliver you and empower you to come on this journey with me, but it's only for the bankrupt. You see, this is a threat. This sort of statement from Jesus is a threat to two sorts of people in the room. And I just want to make sure that we're properly threatened, okay? To the irreligiously rich and successful, this is a threat. I have a dear friend, a friend that I've prayed for, a friend that, uh, he was the quarterback on the football team, and he's good looking, and he's smart, and he's made a lot of money. And if he wants something, he buys it. And his life is insulated from dealing with reality. And he's struggling, but he can't admit it. This is someone that I've loved for a long time and I would love to see a, a transition, but the struggle is that he is so able. He's so able. He's got everything he needs. And as a result, he's missing the one thing he needs. And I, I realize that 
there's a, there's a part of it. It's why in Luke's telling of this sermon preached in a different spot that Jesus actually in this other location in the plains, he didn't say the poor in spirit. He just said, blessed are the poor. The reason is because our physical wealth oftentimes confuses and deceives us about the state of our spirit that we start going, yeah, I kind of do have it together. I can meet my needs. I'm okay. And Jesus is going, when you start in that place, you will never be able to enter the kingdom. You don't have the keys to get in the door because it's only for the bankrupt. This is a threat to the irreligiously successful. And it is a threat to the religiously pious. If in the first point of the sermon, as I started to define the difference between a crowd and a disciple, there's a little bit of pride that started to, to kind of bubble up in your heart. It's like, you know what? I kind of am a disciple. I kind of do move with Jesus. I kind of do have it together. I kind of am on the right path. I kind of do, it's, I'm pretty good. You see, on the other end of the spectrum, there's this reality that if, if we start to settle into this space of, of our religion and the way that we're trying so hard is what puffs us up, he's going, you know, it's interesting. There's another moment that mirrors this one in the book of Matthew. It's almost identical. Jesus speaks to disciples while he lets crowds listen. He's up on the side of this hill. And what he speaks, though, is not blessings. He speaks woes in chapter 23. And he speaks the woes not to the impoverished of spirit, but to the wealthy of spirit. You're so religious. You tithe, even your dill and your mint and your cumin. You've done it all perfectly but you think that makes you worthy before God. You see, these words are a threat to the religiously pious. If all of a sudden we start going, you know what, I am pretty good. Because listen, the keys of the kingdom, the good life is only available to bankrupt disciples. Out of curiosity this week, I went on Google and I typed in, how do I declare bankruptcy? I was just, I'm not, I, we're not, it's not like we're worried about this. I just meant it was for the sermon. And so uh, Ashley was like, you're Googling what? Um, it's interesting. The first several sites that pop up, if you Google, how do I declare bankruptcy are don't do it. It says, don't do it. Reposition your debts. Manage them in these ways. Don't do it. It will ruin your life. Don't do it. I was clicking, I was scrolling through, I was like, I want to know how to declare bankruptcy, and the only answer the internet can give me is don't do it. The reason? Because that is everything in us. Like that is, I can, I can reposition debts, I can pay it down, I'm going to get a plan. I'm going to get a plan, I'm going to chip away at it, because to declare bankruptcy, that's just so final, so embarrassing, it's humiliating. To say that I can't cover my debts? Like, don't do that. You see, there's a reason Jesus starts here. What he's saying is the only way in is admitting that you're never going to be able to reposition these debts and pay them down. Friends, we stand before a holy God declared guilty. Guilty with a debt 
that is the size of eternity because we have consistently offended an eternal law. And Jesus steps into the flow of human history and into all of those that are trying so hard to amass all the stuff to make the good life. He's going, listen, you're never gonna be able to live the good life until you realize you're bankrupt. And in our desire to to position and to protect, we want to resist that. But this is what he's saying. Listen, I can cover every debt. Jesus is the ultimate picture of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. We will see this time and again. He is the one that experienced poverty of spirit like no other. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and who is perfect morally and ethically, listening to the voice of the Father by the power of the Spirit every step of the way as the perfect man. But when he was handed over, when he was pinned to the cross, he was made to be sin, even though he had never known sin. Bankrupt. Bankrupt in such a way that the Father had to look away. Jesus took every one of our debts deep down into his soul, separated mysteriously and devastatingly from the presence of the Father as he was pounded down into nothing, absorbing hell into his bones. So that in his resurrection power and glory, what he could say is I have an account that can cover every debt. I have opened the way to the good life now and forevermore, but it is only for those that will say, I'm bankrupt and I need you to cover me. The invitation this morning is clear. Jesus is inviting us to live the good life. It's only available to disciples. It's only available to those that will stay. I'm not gonna continue to stand in the back and just be a part of the crowd. I'm in with this Jesus and the reason I'm in is because I'm bankrupt and no one else can cover me. I'm in wherever he goes. He has purchased me with his blood and I'm his. And as we respond to this call, we are going to go on a journey in the coming weeks together with King Jesus to learn what is the happy life truly. Will you go on this journey with us And will you start with the first and critical and most important step? Would you admit that you're bankrupt and welcome him in fresh as your king? And let's not just be a crowd, let's be disciples because the good life is available to bankrupt disciples. Let me pray for us. God, where any of us think that we still have some wherewithal spiritual ability. We have still something in the tank that we can manage this debt. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would convict us and reveal us, reveal the truth that we are in desperate need of your touch and your touch alone. King Jesus, thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We can't wait to celebrate the waters of baptism as a beautiful picture of just this truth. That to those that have been bankrupted, you will heal and cover and welcome into new life. We bless you and we thank you for that. And I pray that we all together would go on the journey with you, not just marveling at you, but moving with you. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.